So let's pray and we'll begin. Uh, our Father in heaven, uh, I just, I give you thanks, first of all, for who you are and for giving us your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, and for giving us the Holy Spirit and all that he does for us on a daily basis, Lord, we thank you. And God, we also uh, thank you for each other. I thank you for those that are here to, to study your word with me tonight. I thank you for those uh, behind the scenes, Lord, that are um, working so hard to set this up and to make things right. And Lord, we pray right now that whatever is stopping either video or audio from being perfect, Lord, that you would um, just bring us those answers as soon as possible. And God, um, we do seek to honor you tonight. So rid us of anything that won't and let this just be pure in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. First John. Now, one of the more obvious things I'm going to tell you tonight is this. First John was written by John. Now, you might say, well, which John? We have a couple Johns in the Bible. This is John the Apostle, the Apostle John, one of the 12. He has authored five of these New Testament books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which we'll be hitting in consecutive order in this study, and then, of course, the book of Revelation, which we'll be studying after that. So he's authored five of these books. Uh, this particular book, um, our best guess is it was written around 80 AD, 80 years after the birth of Christ. Some scholars think it's around 90 AD. Some think it's had to be before 70 AD. Uh, it depends on what persecution we think John is preparing people for or encouraging them through, whether it was from Nero or from Domitian. Um, so uh, we're not completely sure when it was written. I would say 80 is a very good estimate of when this book was written. Now, this book mostly is going to be warning us against false teachers and uh, bringing up the, the tremendous threat that false teachers bring us. And this book also seems to be greatly tied to the Gospel of John. And what I mean by that is this. Where the Gospel of John is objective and what it's telling us, this book is much more subjective. So instead of giving us the concrete details about Jesus, this is much more the implications of us knowing Jesus. The Gospel of John is very much a historical document where this epistle of 1 John is much more a moral or ethical document for us. In the Gospel of John, we get the theology of Jesus Christ. In 1 John, we get the ethics of a Christian, the ethics of the Christian or the Christian life. In the Gospel of John, it's very didactic in that it's very much instructional in teaching and this epistle, it's more polemical. It's more controversial. It pits very much so truth against lies. It, it gives you the glory of truth and the extreme eternal danger of lies. Now, what we're going to see in this is that there's different claims out there in the world. And the broadest of categories that I can use for those claims uh, to start us off tonight would be this. There are those that claim that there is no God, and those are our atheists that are out there, that are those that claim that we don't have the ability to know if there's a God or not out there. Those are the agnostics that are out there. Then there are those who say there is or there must be a God up there. 
These are the theists. These are, that's theism. And under the umbrella of theism, we have those who believe there are many gods, and those would be the polytheists. And then there are those that believe there is one God, and those would be the monotheists. Now, John is going to give us eyewitness testimony to which one of those is true. And why that's important is because atheism, agnosticism, and polytheism don't have any eyewitness accounts to them. They're just philosophical. They're just ideas. Monotheism is broken down into three major religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And only one of them has eyewitness testimony that's backed up by miracles that's also supported by prophecy. Prophecy is a form of a miracle in that it's talking about events that have not yet happened, saying they will happen. And we live in a very privileged time of being able to see the fulfillment of all of those prophecies save the, re the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we get to sit in this position of having it proved to us in these, all these different ways. Now, why do I bring that up? Because John is going to open up this letter by emphasizing this eyewitness testimony. And what I want to uh, share further is this. The problem with all these views except for Christianity is, or except for theism is this. The problem with atheism is their, their mantra is that there is no God. Now, in philosophy, one thing that we know that you can never ever prove is a negative statement. That, so the negative statement that there is no God is impossible to prove. And when an atheist says to me, hey, there's, there is no God out there, what I say to them is something like, how do you know he's not sipping lemonade on the other side of Jupiter right now? Can you prove that right now? And of course the answer is no, I cannot prove that. And so therefore you cannot make the statement that there is no God because you cannot prove that. You can only assume that or think that. So atheism will always fall under 100% certainty. Nobody can have 100% certainty that there's no God because it's impossible to prove a negative statement. So that's a huge obstacle of atheism. The problem with agnosticism is what is that they will have to overcome, to be a credible agnostic, they'll have to overcome what we're going to study tonight. Because the agnostic says we can't know if there's a God out there or not. John says, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him. I know God. I've walked with them, I've talked with them. And so the agnostic will have to credibly refute John's testimony here in this letter that he gives us if they're going to be a credible agnostic because we have not just John but others that say God was manifested to us and we walked with them, we talked with them, we touched them, we talked with them, we heard them, and we saw them. Now, that brings us to theism. If atheism has its problems and agnosticism has its problems, that brings us to theism. Under that category is polytheism and monotheism. The problem with polytheism is simply this. To fit the definition of being a god, you must have all of the perfections of goodness. So whether that goodness is beauty, whether that goodness is morality, whether that goodness is, is wisdom or, or knowledge, Whatever the good attribute is, to be a god, you must have those attributes in their perf perfect levels, at their, in their perfections. 
if more than one God had these attributes and all of their perfections, they would literally be indistinguishable from one another. They would be so identical twins that you wouldn't recognize that there was more than one of them out there. So you wouldn't even know if there's more than one God in a sense because they would have to be identical because if they were not identical, what would make them not identical is that one of them would have to lack one of the attributes that makes them God and if you, to, to make them distinguishable. And if you lack an attribute that makes you God, guess what you are no longer? God. So polytheism has its flaws in, its, in, in just the idea of it. So that would leave us with monotheism as the most likely truth that's out there. And like I said, there's three major monotheistic religions. So which one of those holds the most water? Judaism, Islam, or Christianity? Well, as I said earlier, the only one that can say, I saw God, I touched God, I walked with God, I talked with God, is the Christian religion. And that would leave us with what's the credibility of the ones that said they walked with God, talked with God, and all of that. What is their credibility? And John will touch upon that tonight as well. So that, by means of introduction, is what I have for you. Now let's uh, dig into the text. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. And there we read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship was with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. All right, let's stop there and discuss that a little bit. So John starts in the very first verse by saying this, that which was from the beginning. Now, this is the third book of the Bible that begins with the word beginning. You can probably anticipate the first book that begins with the word beginning is Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second book that begins with the word beginning is John's gospel, okay? He says that which, uh, he'll say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And now John, for a second time, starts this epistle with the word beginning, that which was from the beginning. So what do we get out of these three uses of beginning? Well, as you know, in Genesis 1.1, we're talking about the beginning is when creation happened, and at that creation, we're introduced to God as the creator. Then magnificently, in John's gospel, he takes that word beginning, which of course all of his readers would instantly tune into the fact he's talking about creation, and he says this interesting language of, in the beginning was the word, and then amazingly he says the word was both with God and he was God. Now that is a human impossibility. I can't both be with somebody and be that somebody at the same time, but somehow this word, that John, the person that John refers to as the word, is both with God and he is God. So without that verse or that section of the Bible trying to teach us about the Trinity, it's actually using the proper language if God is indeed triune. 
He can both be with one of his personhoods and be that God at the same time. So John starts with that which was from the beginning. So that's where our mind goes, to the beginning. Now of that God, the God of, let's just say right now, the God of the Old Testament, the God of creation, the God that the first century Jewish audience of John would know as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, okay? So that God, what does he say about him now? He says, I heard him, okay? Well, so did the prophets of old. He says, I have seen him. We have seen him. Notice the plural there. This is multiple eyewitness testimony. We have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. What's the difference between seeing and looking upon. Seeing is using your eyes and perceiving what's in front of you. Looking upon it has the connotation of considering and beholding and meditating upon. So they considered this one that they saw and they heard. They consider him in a deeper way. They've looked upon him. And it says, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So now, what sets Christianity apart from the other monotheistic religions and for that matter, all other worldviews is this. We have a claim being made that the God who was only heard from, from prophets and so forth, now has been heard and seen and touched remarkably, touched. And that makes the study of God or the search for God no longer a philosophical argument that we can only speak about through ideas of God and, 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 and in this philosophical way. That's a hard thing to argue is philosophy. Now, John is saying this, the argument for the existence of God is no longer just in the area of philosophy. It is now also in the area of history. God has entered into history and he's now become an historical argument as well as a philosophical argument. So it's much easier to examine history than it is philosophy. God has penetrated our time and space universe to make himself manifested, available to our senses like never before. So John starts by saying, what I'm about to tell you, I want you to know this. I'm gonna tell you about God. I'm gonna tell you I saw him. I'm gonna tell you I heard him. I'm gonna tell you I've touched them. That, ladies and gentlemen, is of the most phenomenal statements ever uttered. And it needs our serious consideration because now the only thing left for us to do is say, what's the credibility of the man who said, I saw God, I walked with God, I talked with God, I heard God and I touched God. What's the credibility of that man? We'll talk about that shortly. All right. Now, he says, that which was from the beginning, which I have, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Verse two, the life was manifested. Now, what does that mean? It means made available to your senses. Your senses can now take in this El Shaddai, this God Almighty. You can now take him in with your senses. He says, and we have seen and bear witness and 
most importantly, declare. Declare it to you. That you um, and what are we declaring to you? That eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So as he talks about Jesus being the word that was from the beginning, that was manifested, I want to remind you of this. Back to John's gospel, the relationship that these two letters have with each other. John's gospel says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He says all things were made through him. He's the God of creation. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the creator of all things. Okay, And then in verse 14 of chapter 1 of John's gospel, he says what I think becomes the biggest crisis in human history. He'll say in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. This El Shaddai God Almighty, the God of the flood of Noah, the God that parts the Red Sea to rescue his people through the Red Sea and drown the Egyptians in their wake, the God of the conquering of, of Canaan, the God who equipped David to take down Goliath, the God that spoke uh, uh, to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the others, uh, that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He hung out with us. He became one of us, which was absolutely necessary because we are in desperate need of a substitute because we are under the sentence of death, ladies and gentlemen. The wages of our sin is death. And if we are to not experience that death, but to live forever, then we need a substitute. So the word became flesh. So he could substitute for us. And the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ was communicated to us as early as Genesis chapter three. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, remember what God said to Adam? On the day you eat of the fruit, you will what? Surely die. Then it says in the genealogy that Adam lived to be over 900 years old. So how did he live to be 900 years old? Eat the fruit on which the day he, he would eat it, he would surely die. Now, a lot of scholars say this, and it's probably what you have heard the most. Well, they died spiritually. And they must have died spiritually because we're, talk, we're told we're spiritually dead before Christ. But I think it's a little bit different. I really do. I think they were supposed to die physically that day that they ate of it. But what happened that day? They tried to hide the fact that they sinned. And to do that, they had to hide the nakedness that was the sign of their sin. So they sewed fig leaves together. That gives us a gospel of works salvation, right? Did God accept their works? No. What did he do? He killed an animal, the first ever death on our planet. And he took the skin of that animal and he clothed them and covered their nakedness with the skin of that animal. So why didn't Adam and Eve die the day they ate of the fruit? Because they had a substitute. Something died instead of them. They're learning about something can die in your place, which will set up the sacrificial system of the Old Testament throughout all of Old Testament days. But then when John the Baptist points at Jesus Christ and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's saying, here's the very last sacrifice because this is the only sacrifice that's from eternity. Eternity past to eternity 
future. So the book of Hebrews will say he died once for all time. He's the final sacrifice. So God did the first sacrifice of an animal for Adam and Eve, and he does the last sacrifice as himself, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. That's our covering. That's why Adam and Eve didn't die the day they eat, ate of the fruit. Now, um, at, so in now verse 3, we get this. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. So now let's talk about the credibility of the one declaring. He is saying, I saw God, I heard God, I touched God, I walked with God, I talked with God. Is John a liar or is he telling the truth? Well, a strong reason why we can believe John and we can believe the others is this. Their credibility rests in what they were willing to sacrifice to declare this to us. And what were they willing to sacrifice to declare it to us? If somebody tells you an important story and they want you to believe it, and then when you say, um, uh, you know, prove it, and they're not willing to do anything to prove it, that's a statement on how valuable they think that message is. It's not that valuable because they're not willing to do anything to prove it. But with this message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that they're, they're declaring, the people that declared it, what is their credibility? Uh, it's this. It is what? It is. Hmm. It's a good thing I typed it all out and I can't see it now. Well, it's this. Six of the 12 apostles, and maybe you guys see it in your notes. I don't see it in mine right now. But six of the 12, ah, there it is. Peter, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot were crucified for declaring this to us. Crucified, slow, torturous death. And they didn't take back their story ever. James, the son of Zebedee, which is John's brother that wrote this letter. Matthew, they were killed by the sword and didn't take back their declaration about Jesus Christ. Um, Thomas had a spear thrust through him because he wouldn't take back his story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The dais was shot by arrows. And that leaves just John, who wrote this letter, who church tradition said was dipped in burning oil to try to kill him, but he was unaffected by it. And he ended up dying an old man, uh, either during or after his prison sentence on Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And the only other one left is Judas, who declared the opposite and therefore ended up committing suicide. So those that declared this message to us, what is their credibility? Guys, what greater credibility could they have than they stuck to their message for the decades that followed and received nothing but imprisonments, beatings, and eventually their own execution, and they never budged on this story? Can you imagine a greater credibility is there anything you could creatively think of that would give 
these declarers of the gospel more credibility than that. I can't. They paid for it with their lives. Now, now what does all this mean? Well, John says this, that which we have seen and we heard, we declare to you, why? That you also may have fellowship with us. He says, we're declaring it because those who believe the truth automatically enter into fellowship with one another. And then we get wonderful truths like this, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's what fellowship together does. That's what my Christian friends help me to do. They sharpen me. My prayer is something about tonight will sharpen you. This is what we do for one another in the faith. So, so, so John is saying, I'm declaring it to you because if you receive this truth, then we enter into this fellowship together. And this fellowship is part of the nutrition. It's part of the Christian diet to become stronger and to thrive in our faith. So this fellowship is very, very important. And then he adds this. Well, let me say this, first of all, about this fellowship. The Apostle Paul will say this in Romans 1. He will say that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Now, Paul had reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. And the reasons Paul the Jew could have been ashamed of the gospel was that, one, he was going to Rome, he was writing this to the Romans, and he has a very anti-Roman message. That would make you want tend to back down from the message. When you're going to the capital of the world at that time to say, you guys got it all wrong and you need to change. But he didn't use that as a reason to not share the gospel. Second reason he could have been ashamed of the gospel is because his message is very anti-Roman. He's gonna go against their way of, uh, of thinking. And this message constantly got Paul beaten and imprisoned. And yet he keeps coming back. He shares with us that he received five different times the 39 lashes that Jesus got. Jesus got them once. Paul got them on five different occasions. And he kept declaring the message over and over again. But he didn't let that make him ashamed of the message, how he was treated for it. So he's not ashamed of the gospel. He keeps creating all over the world more and more fellowships, more and more churches, more and more opportunities for those who receive the truth to have fellowship with one another. So John says, so I, I write this to you so that we may have fellowship. And then he says, and our fellowship, when you join fellowship with us, here's the truly breathtaking thing. He says, our fellowship's with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a club you want to join? My goodness. Now, quick story about this fellowship that we are a part of and not being ashamed of this gospel as being a part of this fellowship. You see, a guy named Dr. Robert Moorhead told a story about a young man from Rwanda. And this young man from Rwanda was forced by his tribe in 1980 to renounce Jesus Christ or to face death. He refused to renounce Christ and he was murdered on the spot. The night before he had written the following commitment, which was found in his room. 
So after he's murdered, they go in his room and they find that he wrote this the night before he was told to renounce Christ and he wouldn't, he was killed. He wrote this, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by his presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That is what John is getting at right here, is I saw him, I heard him, I touched him, and I declare him to you. Even though when I wrote this, all of my friends are dead. They've all been murdered for the very thing that I'm de declaring to you. What kind of message is worth that? The kind of message that's worth that is the kind of message that will save your soul. The type of message that will redeem you from the wages of your sin, which is death. Because with this message, God has a gift for you. And it's the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus and no other. So what about atheism? What about agnosticism? What about polytheism? None of them have any of the elements that you just heard exist in Christianity. That is what John is declaring to us tonight in this letter. Now, he says in verse 4, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So what does a proper understanding of this declaration do? It brings us joy. Now, the theme and the purpose, the purpose statement of this letter, John says is, I want you to have joy. If you knew what I knew, you'd have joy. If you understood God the way I understand God, you will have joy, even in suffering. Now, here's what John said in his gospel, chapter 20, verse 30. So John's purpose statement of 1 John is that your joy may be full. His purpose statement in his gospel of John, 
chapter 20, verse 30, he says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his followers, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So why does he write his gospel? So that you believe. Why does he write his epistle? So that in believing you'll have joy. Okay, so those that knew Jesus best suffered tremendously. And in their suffering, they say they are filled with inexpressible joy. What in the world is their message then? What could possibly be worth their suffering in their lives and yet bring them great joy? It can be nothing less than the message of Jesus Christ. It has to be as spectacular as the gospel. It has to be. So we continue on. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Now, I think because John wanted to say, this is a message that we heard from him. So what does he have to say first? I heard God. I saw God. I touched God. Now I can say this. And here's the message that we heard from him. And what is that message we heard from him? And we declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, this is interesting. It's almost unexpected. What is this idea of when you want to tell me about God, the first thing out of your mouth is that he's light and there's no darkness in him at all. Well, guess when John said this before? John chapter one, he says, God is light. Okay, now I want you to consider a couple things here. Number one, in John chapter eight, Jesus will say this, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Now, in Matthew five, Jesus will say this, you are the light of the world. You want to talk about fellowship? What is that fellowship? He's the light. And guess what happens when you're put in the presence of light? You become the light. Okay? So as there is found no darkness in Jesus at all, guess what would interfere with us being the light? Walking in darkness. And what does that mean? That means treasuring sin in your heart in places of your heart that you're not giving to God. You're not allowing the light in there because I want you to consider this because this is an important point. If you're walking in darkness when you've been declared to be the light, understand this. Darkness cannot exist in the presence of light, can it? Have you ever hit a light switch and the light turns on and then you see this battle and you're wondering, I wonder if the light will win or the darkness will win. Or, you know, I never know. And, you know, there's this huge struggle between light and darkness. No. Every time you turn on the light, the darkness instantly disappears. It's no competition. It's not even close. There, the only way to experience darkness is to remove the light. If the light is present, the light wins 100% of the time. So John is going to get very, very direct with us, and I praise God for his directness because, boy, do we need direct talk in our, in our lives, in our hearts. So he'll say this. The message that we heard from him and we declare to you is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, remember he says, here's why I'm declaring the truth to you, so that you can have fellowship with us 
And when you have fellowship with us, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, when you have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, you're having fellowship with the light, aren't you? And if there's darkness in you, guess what's going to happen to your darkness? It's going to be extinguished, and you with it, okay? So we have to walk in the light as he is in the light. So if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Now, John is calling out people on their hypocrisy here. You're saying you're, you've been made the light of the world. And Jesus says, when I make you the light of the world, I'm not going to hide you under a basket. I'm going to put you up on a lampstand so that everybody can see that light. That's how we reach the world. But if you walk in darkness and you say that you're the light of the world and you continue to walk in darkness, he says, then you lie. Because light and darkness cannot coexist. So therefore, this is why I say there are no such things as carnal Christians. You're either carnal or you're Christian. You are not both. Carnal Christianity is the claim that I know I do this sin, but that's okay because that's the only sin I really do, but I'm a Christian. That has no place in Jesus Christ's redemption of your soul. If you don't start growing to hate your own sin, I would question your salvation because Jesus Christ dwells in you and he is light and darkness gets extinguished by light. Now, it doesn't mean you'll never sin again, ladies and gentlemen. What it does mean is you're going to start strongly valuing that which is in you that is light over that which is darkness and your own desires are going to be to overcome the darkness that's in you. You're going to want to do it. You're going to desire to do it, okay? So to say this darkness in me is okay, I'm still a Christian, John says this, you lie. Because it's an insult to the light to say that darkness can dwell with it and that that's okay. God has given us light in this universe to demonstrate for us that it conquers the darkness always. Now, the lights in your house instantly conquer the darkness. The light that's in us, sometimes it takes a little time to conquer our darkness. But the sign that Jesus is in you and is light is that you desire to conquer that darkness, that you're praying against that darkness, that you're, 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 you're getting accountability for your darkness. You're doing things that darkness would not want you doing because it know it's not going to be able to stand against your darkness. We confuse the world by this hypocrisy of ignore my darkness, I'm still a Christian. Don't be bothered by my darkness, I'm still a Christian. Um, somebody said, uh, I know DC Talk, the band, actually puts this in one of their songs. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then, and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. They just can't believe. Mahatma Gandhi said, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Okay? Um, it confuses the world 
when we embrace darkness, when the pure light of the world abides in us. Now, Jesus, if he, if he had a major issue that came out in, in the appearance of anger, it was this issue of hypocrisy. In uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, it is loaded with this statement to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. If you say you're in the light and you embrace darkness, John says, you lie. You're creating confusion in the world, okay? Now, lest somebody is out there saying, I might not be a Christian now because of this or that issue in me, I would say this, examine your heart and see if you desire that darkness to go. And if you're doing anything about that darkness, that's all I'm saying. You should not embrace darkness. You should battle against darkness because Jesus is pure light, okay? And the more light that we have in us, the more the world will know that not only you're a Christian, but that your fellowship is not only with other Christians, but it's with the light of the universe is who you fellowship with. All right, moving on, finish up the chapter. Verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, I probably should have read that verse before I just did my rant and rave because that's explaining what I just said. If we walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ as the light, he will cleanse us from all sin, okay? Now, that leads us into one of the, the most famous verse of this chapter, and he says this, here's what you do with the darkness that's in you. It says, if we confess our sins, okay, if, it's a huge word in the Bible. This word if means we're actually in a working relationship with God. If we do this, then he'll do this. That's relationship. He's, we're in cooperation with God. Isn't that amazing? We're in cooperation with God. So with this darkness that we're all born with, if we confess our sins to him, if we're faithful to confess our sins, then he is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that remarkable? Okay, listen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, none of us, not me, not any of you, are light as he is light. We struggle with some issues of sin. So my question then becomes, how many of us actually verbally in prayer confess those sins to him? Because when do you get cleansed of all of your unrighteousness? He says, if you confess your sins. If you confess your sins, okay? It's the relationship part with him. It's not hiding anything from him. As a parent, if you have a child who sins, your heart will forgive them because you're their parent. But if they confess it to you, it's a whole different level of forgiveness. It's relational. It's 
I can now cleanse you of that sin because you've confessed it to me. I can have relationship with you. I can talk to you about it, teach you about it, motivate you in ways that I couldn't if you didn't confess it to me. So God the Father is looking for that humbleness, that humility that comes with confession. The lack of pride that's required to actually confess your sins to God. And if you're good at confessing and you know you confess every day, then I promise you during the day you're going to say, I'm not going to do that sin because I'm only going to have to own up, it, own up to it tonight. And that gets a little embarrassing when you keep owning up to the same thing over and over and over again. At some point, the Holy Spirit's going to work in you and going to have you conquer that sin. Because remember, Christians, and I'm very, very, very um, thrilled to be able to say um, are, are, are victors, more than conquerors, correct? We have victory already won. We need to walk in our victory. All right. Concluding with, um, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar. So first it says, if you say you don't sin, you lie. But here's the thing. God says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you say you've not sinned, now you're making him a liar because he said everybody does it. Okay. So now John says, even worse than you being a liar, you're calling God a liar. And that means his word is not in you. His word is not in you. His word, see, when people say to me, I'm a carnal Christian, I say something like, your Holy Spirit's broken then. You need a new Holy Spirit. Because the true Holy Spirit doesn't um, accept comfort with sin. Okay? So, uh, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. It's just a sinner trying to be comfortable with themselves in the face of a holy God. Um, John uh, shares that with us, and I, I'm very grateful for his bluntness uh, to us. So, now, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us, and I will finish with this. The problem with not admitting our sin is this. If we don't sin, then we don't need a Savior. And if we don't need a Savior, then we're never going to see Jesus as he truly is in his true light. Jesus is most beautiful and most glorious when we see him for all that he is, which is Savior, which means you need saving, Redeemer, which means you need redeeming, um, and if we don't acknowledge our sin, then why do you need a savior? Why do you need redemption if you're not a sinner, if you say that you don't have sin? So I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, and that's why I love Jesus so much. Because he has washed me of my sins. He has cleansed me on a daily basis of my sins. And um, that is part of our relationship together. Thank God he's faithful. Thank God he's patient. Thank God he's compassionate. Thank God that when we suffer, he weeps. He, he, he shares our emotion. And thank God he is ever, ever faithful to us. That's why he's worthy of worship. That's why he's worthy of your, all of your life uh, being devoted to him. Let's pray. Fathers, in Jesus' name, we come to you, and, and God, um, 
I'm just thinking now of the verse that you've, you've given us in Romans 5 that um, says maybe somebody would be willing to die for a good man or a righteous man. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God, you took us in our filth, you took us in our imperfections, you took us in our rebellion, and you stood between us and Satan and took our beating, took our punishment, took our penalty, and took our death. And then you rose again on the third day to show that the grave has no claim over you, death has no victory over you. And then you invite us into fellowship with you and Lord, we didn't do a thing but sin. So we thank you that in our helplessness, you are helpful. In our weakness, you are strong. And I pray, Lord, that you would never allow us to look upon a cross or to read your word without being moved by your deep love for us. And may, Lord, our light shine brighter and our darkness dissipate in increasing measure every day as we walk with you in jesus name amen earlier we were talking about how uh, darkness is instantly overtaken by light uh, we have a question here that says how would you then address shadows and were they uh, fit into that equation um well when we talk spiritually um the bible literally says there is no shadow of turning with god so Shadows is more just the fact that we as fleshly creatures, when, when you have the image of the sun, because you can't have shadows without light, right, without the sun. So when we have this sun that's in our sky and it's trying to be this pure light to us, guess what casts the shadow of darkness on the ground? The center, you know? So I think it actually turns out to be a pretty good picture of what the Bible's talking about is um, there what, what's causing that darkness of that shadow. It's that the pure light of the sun is shining on a sinner. And, it, and so hopefully, you know, without the sun, there'd be total darkness, but God gives us the light. He's the light. He gives us the light. And what does it do to the total darkness? It makes it just a shadow. And that's what your sin should be in your life is just the shadow. It's just a shadow of, of the pure light that that's we're, we're supposed to be. And that part, that's a shadow, you confess it to God and you get forgiveness for it and uh, you get cleansed from it. Next question is along the same vein. It says, if we lose our joy, are we in darkness? Well, that's very dependent upon the circumstances of losing your joy. Um, if you lose your joy in the Lord, whenever people come to me and say, I'm dry spiritually, uh, I feel distant from God, 100% of the time I say, is there a sin in your life that you can identify that you've grown comfortable with or is new in your life or something? Because the, the, the most common reason for a lack of joy or for dryness or distance from God is sin. Sin is, is a barrier. Sin separates you from God and would block that joy. So maybe it's something you're watching you shouldn't be watching, music you're listening to, Maybe it's um, anger or unforgiveness you have towards somebody that you're not bringing to the Lord and trying to be forgiving towards them. You know, it could be any number of things 
but all of the things that I just mentioned are a form of sin. And that would be, the, to me, the most common reason for um, uh, a, lack of, a lack of joy besides circumstances. I mean, if you get fired, divorced, um, sick, um, those could be joy killers that don't have to do with your spirituality necessarily. It just have to, it has to do with uh, the fact that um, God has left us in this world now, and this world is sinful and evil, and it can affect our joy. But if your joy dissipates spiritually, then I would check to see about the sin in your life, for sure. So number one reason for people not desiring to read the Bible and everything, is there's just a sin that they're holding on to. And sometimes those sins are our habits. And because they're habitual, we don't even recognize them as sin anymore. And so it's hard for us to identify the sin in our life because we're just so used to whatever that sin is. So, you know, sometimes we need to really examine ourselves or to have accountability partners that we're very transparent with that can speak into our lives and say, what's up with that thing that you're doing or, or whatnot. And guys, listen, I can't tell you how many times when we get to the bottom of why somebody's not joyful or they're dry spiritually, so many times it's an unforgiveness issue. They just can't forgive somebody for something. Forgiveness in the New Testament, it's hard to position forgiveness as something that's optional for a believer. Everything in the Bible that talks about forgiveness leaves you no reason to think it's an option you have. The idea of forgiveness in the Bible is if you understand how much you've been forgiven, both daily and eternally, that it would lead your heart to desire to be forgiving to others. Because Jesus's parable on forgiveness says that we have an unpayable debt to God, that he's torn it up and forgiven the whole thing. And all the sin that could be against us is payable. It's not an unpayable debt. It's a much smaller debt than our debt to God. And if he would forgive us the overwhelming debt that he has, the expectation is you allow him to work in your heart so that you can forgive the much lesser sins that are against you. So, um, and I understand how resistant somebody could be towards forgiveness to somebody because of the amount of pain that they've experienced and the hurt they've experienced from that person. But the reason why you're, one of the reasons why you're still hurting and still in unforgiveness is because you haven't forgiven. That's a huge key to getting relief from your pain and your anger is forgiveness. And I would say this, to not be forgiving is to forfeit the possibility of ever returning fully to your joy ever again. You'll never experience the joy that you're capable of as long as you're holding on to unforgiveness. You've eliminated the possibility of fullness of joy. It can only come fullness of joy through forgiveness is what I've seen and experienced and understand biblically. I know that could be heavy, and if that was very heavy for somebody, believe me when I tell you, if you get a hold of me, I'd be happy to talk to you one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. The next question we have uh, refers to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And that, the, the statement says, please ask Pastor Bill how one reconciles that passage with the statement that there are no carnal Christians. 1 Corinthians 3, what? Verses 1 through 4. 
And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm Apollos, are you not carnal? He's not celebrating their carnality. He's saying, if you're that way and you don't get off of it, then you're never going to grow. You're never going to, to um, advance. And in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about the same thing, it talks about you're still a babe in the faith. It's a strong, strong rebuke that you're still on a diet of milk and not going on to meat, and it's strongly rebuked. So the question becomes, is he rebuking a true believer that's saved and redeemed by God? Or is he saying that if you remain a babe in Christ, if your baby stayed a baby for many, 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 many years, you would say something is terribly wrong. So it should not be is the point. It should not be. This passage says it. Hebrews says it even stronger. Should not be that you remain that way. Now, I can see the question coming from the fact that it says you're babes in Christ. But the argument becomes, is he saying you're claiming to be in Christ, but the fact that you remain a babe becomes questionable if you're in Christ or not. That's the, the argument uh, on this uh, one. Another question here that says, do you believe that the Christian's heart is still desperately wicked? Do you think that a Christian's heart can be pure? Um, the first question, um, I don't think a Christian's heart can be desperately wicked. I think the verses that talk about the heart being desperately wicked, who can understand it, is speaking of um, the condition that we, we are in without redemption. Um, to say that the Christian's heart is desperately wicked would, would indicate that the Christian who loves Christ is loving him from a heart of wickedness. So where is redemption and the idea that the Christian's heart is desperately wicked. Where is renewal? Where is born again of the Spirit? So uh, where is I make all things new? Um, so where is you've put off the old man and behold, all things are new? Where is um, you're a new creation in Christ, a new creature in Christ? So um, I think... Um, when the Bible talks about the heart is desperately wicked, it's saying that's why you need it redeemed. It's not saying after you're redeemed, you still have a desperately wicked heart because that would mean the source of our love for God is wickedness if it's desperately wicked. So, um, um, so no, I don't think the Christian's heart's desperately wicked. What was the second part of that question? Second part of the question says, do you think that a Christian's heart can be pure? Uh, not pure as, as, as God's heart is pure. I think there's, there's until, see, the idea of sanctification is that it'll be a process of being more like Christ until the day of death when you're glorified. And, and, that, and the day of your death is the fulfillment of Philippians 1.6, which says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to the day of Christ Jesus. So in other words, he began the work and he'll be faithful in continuing the work 
until the completion of that work, which is what day? The day of Christ Jesus, which is the day of your death or the day of his coming. So um, uh, I don't think we'll reach a true definition of purity until we die and are glorified or Christ comes back while we're alive. Because otherwise sanctification would stop. If you ever reach pure purity, then you're, there's nothing to sanctify anymore. You'd literally be walking around with somebody going, hey, I finished my sanctification process. Um, that, that would seem not likely or I would say possible, not even possible, yeah. So not pure, pure, but more pure, but not totally pure. But not desperately wicked either. This is the last question of the evening. Um, and it's a pretty straightforward question. It just says, what is or what are some of the main themes of First John? Uh, I believe John is attacking, he's going to start attacking Gnosticism, uh, the Gnostics of the day, um, the false teachers of the day. The Gnostics, among other false teachings, they would say that um, flesh is not good, therefore God would never come in the flesh. So that means Jesus was either um, a, uh, what do they call him, a, uh, like a hallucination or a, that's not the word that they use, so I forget how they put it, but that he could not have been physical flesh because flesh is evil and God would never indwell evil type of thing. So he's gonna, so he starts by saying uh, against Gnosticism, what, how did he start this letter? I've seen him, I heard him, I touched him. He was flesh indeed, and yet he's light, he's pure, he's God. So that opening four verses completely destroys Gnosticism right in its place right there. So um, that's the beauty of the introduction is before he even gets into attacking Gnosticism, he simply introduces a letter in a way Gnostics could not, um, they couldn't um, keep their teachings intact through that introduction. He destroys their thoughts right from the very beginning. So I think the theme is, it's really, you're gonna see these contrasts between darkness and light that you already saw, and then he's gonna introduce the contrast between truth and lies, which he already started introducing as well. So it's really, he's contrasting that what Jesus Christ does to a follower of his is he brings them out of darkness into light and from uh, being a child of the father of lies to being a follower of the truth itself. Not the concept of truth, but the truth. Jesus says, I'm not a truth teller. I'm, I am actually the truth. So, um, the Bible doesn't leave any middle ground, by the way. So um, there's no gray areas. There's nothing in between the darkness and the light. There's nothing in between the truth and the lie. There's no comfortable ground for us to say we are in when the Bible only has the polar opposites available. You're hot or you're cold or you're disgusting to them. Okay, so there's nothing in between. So you're for me or you're against me. So you can't be neutral because neutral is not for him. So the neutral is actually against him. So um, John especially uh, polarizes these ideas, lightness, light and darkness, uh, lies and truth. Other writers will contrast it with flesh and spirit. That's a big Paul theme is flesh and spirit, nothing in between. Uh, other binaries that we're given are... Um, 
clean and unclean. That's very Levitical. Um, that's very uh, Old Testament. Uh, you're clean or you're unclean. There, there's no pretty clean or pretty dirty. Um, you're one or the other, um, uh, which to me is great, great simplicity, which I appreciate. I'm glad there's not degrees of it because then everybody be arguing over those degrees, I'm sure. So you are and you aren't. You're for them or you're against them. I hope this was helpful. And um, uh, these are wonderful, wonderful books. And I hope I don't do anything to give you any other impression of them. These are truly marvelous books. I hope this is helpful to you. And uh, I hope it's helping you love the Word of God. I really do. I am. I feel desperate to help people love the Word of God because I think that solves all the world's problems. And I'm not exaggerating. We just have to love the Word of God. So I hope this helps you in that direction. That is the prayers of all of us here. We, we pray before the study. We're hoping that God is helping you to love His Word. And um, so hopefully, prayerfully. And thank you for joining us. It's really good to see you guys. It really is. Mm -hmm.